From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We have been doing this for more than seven years now. We cleared our anniversary mark in early March. Got the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We've been coming to you via Zoom for the last year, which um, has got its mixed mixed consequences, some some blessings, some some curses, but it's allowed us to keep the show going. And in fact, it's turned into more of a four-person operation than it usually is. Most of the time, we got the whole crew here. We're going to talk sports analytics and analytics more generally for the next two hours in this first quarter as we've been doing for the last year, we'll talk about COVID-19. It's the context of our lives. It's the context of our sports lives. Things continue to evolve. I'm curious, guys, I'm always curious rolling into this segment to hear how you're thinking about COVID-19 and what you're seeing out there, the science, the forecast, what has caught your eye in coronavirus? Well, I'm going to just jump in. I'm actually reporting from from Florida, which is a a state that's gotten a lot of attention because of its its uh, differing response to coronavirus in other states. And uh, I'm with real tough duty, Adi. Real tough duty this time of year to go from Pennsylvania to Florida. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. But there's one of the things that you know is that 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 people are trying to wonder about. So, what's the what is the actual impact of actual government mandated lockdowns? So, here's a couple of things we do know. We do know that. Lockdowns a la China and Australia are very effective. And what do they do that's different? Well, you're really locked in your house and you don't move out of it for, for, for several months. And, and I know in China and specifically, foods was delivered by the government and in, in full hazmat suits. And I think Australia had extremely intense lockdowns. And then, of course, they're an island and new, new incomers through, through the airports so had to quarantine in hotels. There was no way around it. And though that's effective. And that's we know that. Um, the other issue is in, in other, in other in particularly the United States, you have, and compared to Europe and Canada, you got a lot of variants. But the problem is, is that governments can impose things, but the people have to follow them and, but, and vice versa. And that's also true. Even if the government imposes nothing, the people can still self-impose pretty rigorous um, uh, 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 social distancing, mask wearing, all of this stuff can be done by the population on its own. So what do I have to say about Florida? Um, one thing is interesting about the senior community, even though most of them have been vaccinated by now, they're still pretty rigorously staying apart. They don't go out. They, when they do go into places, they're wearing masks. But I actually had the opportunity to go to the gym in, uh, in Florida. And the contrast between the gym in Florida and the gym in Philly is pretty vast. It's, ah. uh, it, there's no masks in the gym. And um, and so it was it was a pretty interesting moment. And and uh, Florida as a whole as holes, it's mostly an outdoor area, which is a huge advantage. Right. We know that indoor transmission is where things really have been bad. Obviously, individual parties can get together. But most of the state is outdoors. So much of it, which is a great blessing. And it turns out to be a middle state in terms of co- coronavirus uh, um, outcomes among all the states. It's not the worst and it's not the best. It's in the middle. And it's, it's quite interesting how, to just be here on the ground and see what they've done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, let me report real quickly from the region that I'm in. So Texas, you know, fam- infamously opened up a couple of weeks ago, but then some municipalities wanted to keep shut down and, or, or rather at least with some mask requirements. And so actually the state sued Austin to drop their mask requirements and lost the suit. And so you've got this mixed thing. And so Austin is still 
masks in, inside. But as soon as you get outside of Austin, it's back to the Wild West. And it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge out there, but there's a fair bit of no masking um, just beyond the city limits. I, have, I guess I have one other report. If you want to, if you're trying to vaccinate, looking at the vaccinations, we have been vaccinating the United States, but most of our states is plateauing a little bit in terms of the d- diminishment in coronavirus cases. I think most people have a, sort of observed that here in, in Pennsylvania. In general, the trend has been down, but it has been plateauing. Uh, in Israel, where 55% of the population has received at least one shot, you know, 90% of everyone over 60 have gotten both shots. Um, they had also plateaued, but that plateaued has crashed and now it's going way down really fast. Their reproductive number is close to 0.65 by now, and it's wow. going really quickly. Um, I mean, there's no state in the, in the country that's below 0.9 in the United States. So it's, a, it's really going fast. So I think that's promising. Once everybody gets vaccinated or large fraction yeah. really do, we could Actually, really- what, what fraction are we talking about in Israel, Adi? What fraction is vaccinated? At this point? Well, 55% has had one shot or more, but 90% of people about of 60 or over approximately have had one shot or more more. So um, real quick, still- co- comparable numbers for the U.S. I think it's 21, 22% today have had at least one shot. And right. 65 plus is like 65%, something like two thirds of U.S. citizens over 65 have received at least one shot, which seems good. But as you say, it's significantly below the top performing countries out there. I don't, what, I don't, are the, what are the refusal rates in Israel versus the U.S.? Uh, I think in Israel, they're going to be a lot lower because in Israel, the government holds over you things to, that you can do and can't do if you're not vaccinated. So uh, the refusal rates in certain communities were pretty high. Um, and then they just went out and said, not, 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 no, they can't stay high unless you want to not go back to normal. And it turned around and they, and they did a very active campaign uh, to get people to vaccinate. So the refusal rate is going to be substantive, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as high as it's going to be here uh, in the United States. I think once we get down to the below 50s, we're going to start seeing serious refusal rates. That's my prediction. So I just wanted to build on two things Adi said. So one is it just, I didn't know you were going to talk about this. Um, I actually looked at the data of the RT rates by state. Um, mm-hmm. It turns out we have two states, Georgia and Arkansas, are the only two states where one is not in the confidence interval. So if you just compute a confidence interval for the rate of RT, there's, a, there's others below one on, on, as a point prediction, but Georgia and Arkansas are t- the only two states where the rate's actually below one. There are 11 states above one, but again, their confidence interval includes one. So just to say there is evidence that some states, you know, in some sense, the reproduction rate is going to drive things down. Now, whether that's it's going to stay that way, we don't know, but we know that as of now. How do we how do we make sense of Georgia and Arkansas leading the country with low RTs? Because those aren't the states we think of as being mask wearing forward policy, they're low on the vaccine numbers. Like, how do we make sense of that? Uh, It's hard to know. Um, It could be bad data. That's one. That's one possibility. Um, Two, it could just be, um, what is the variation in RT rate? So it could be that this is a number that it's 0.9 this week, and then next week it's up to 1.02. Or if that 0.89.9 number was 0.93, one would be in the interval, and then it wouldn't be statistically different from one. So it could be bad data. It could be small data. It could be noisy measurement. Or it could just be um, somebody has to have the lowest, and um, it could be them. Okay, so real quickly, we got more elaborations coming from other guys, but I just want to give you some numbers. 
Georgia, you said Arkansas and Georgia. Georgia is the state, the 50th in the union on percentage of population with at least one shot from the vaccine. They're 16.1, only 16% of their population. The average in the country is 21. Arkansas is 43rd, 44th, something like that with 19%. So they're, they're a little bit higher, but these are low on the vaccine side and gosh knows they've been low on the public policy side. So Shane and Adi, y'all had possible explanations here as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I wanna just ask you where, you where you got this data because the RT Live that I've been using earlier, they That's actually- That's where I looked. It was so on RT Live. RT Live is, is offline and they link you to uh, Epi Forecast. Is that probably where you probably went to? Um, and, I uh, guess I, cl I clicked on epiforecast.io. And I'm a little worried because I went to the Israel page and they have Israel at 0.12 RT. And that's because their data is missing. So, and they treated the missing data as zeros. Um, so uh, I don't, I, I'm suspicious that what we're seeing in Georgia might simply because, be because of uh, uh, unupdated data on actual vaccine, uh, numbers of, uh, of infections. So I'm, well, I'm a, just not RT, sure yet. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's not directly observed, right? I mean, they're having, no. a, they're building some kind of model to estimate these RTs. And so there's, there, is, there is some slippage, at least potential. Just to let you know, in the two days since I looked, because I have to admit I looked two days ago, um, there's now four states where one is not in the interval. There's Georgia, Arkansas, Alabama, and South Carolina. According to the site, again, I'm just- All the same location. I'm just telling yeah, I mean, you. it's almost like COVID might be hitting that part of the country right now. I mean, I, I, I think we're making too, I mean, reading too much into the details of the distribution when A, all these things are very weakly correlated, I think, with outcome. I mean, the big thing is the timing of when COVID kind of hits different areas. Oh, Montana's I mean, now decreasing. The, Montana's got below one also now. So there's five. You know, if states. you just like, for example, I mean, you originally wanted to kind of try and this link this with adoption of mask mandates or something like that. I, I mean, I think we've been trying to do that for the last year and a half. If you just rank order the states by deaths or cases due to COVID per capita and rank order the states by how much they had mask mandates, would there be any correlation? I don't think there is at all. I doubt there would be, right? Guys, there's a new study out. The CDC put out a study based on months of observation that definitively shows that mask wearing reduces prevalence. Oh, and, oh I, I, I bet and, you it helps. And, I, I bet you it helps. Like if you took the same situation and added masks to it versus not, I bet you there'd be a significant partial effect of masks. But that's not the comparison we're making. We're making a comparison between a bunch of states where COVID's hitting it at different times, of the, you know, times yeah. and where there's a lot of other stuff like, you know, now inoculation, you know, vaccines that are kind of part of the equation. And I agree that, I mean, eventually I think you know, maybe there'll be a rank correlation between amount of vaccine, you know, number of vaccines given and, you know, states by number of vaccines given and, 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 you know, states by kind of case count and stuff like that. But right now there's, I think just so much more kind of random noise in play, like, you know, it's kind of sweeping through the South right now, for example, that I don't think it's worth kind of doing those, trying to at least attribute what's going on with current case counts to some kind of like policy, be, you know, thing. Well, okay, fair, fair enough. It, it is interesting. I mean, so indulge one more ranking of the states because we've been tracking Connecticut's performance. They grabbed our attention a few weeks ago with this new policy that says, we're just gonna, we're gonna dose by age. We're not gonna worry about all these fine criteria. And we embraced that. Adi was talking about it months ago. It was Israel's approach. And Connecticut kind of jumped to the top of the list in terms of percent of citizens with at least one shot. And we thought they were going to keep rising. They were like our favorite number 10 seed in the March Madness tournament. And they were, they were busting the brackets, but 
They've dipped down, guys. They're only fourth in the country. We I anticipated getting the list and seeing them sneak up. But, but nope, New Mexico and Alaska, 29%, 28%. South Dakota and Connecticut down there at 27%. They're still in the fight. They're not eliminated. But, but I mean, uh, isn't there some weird factor going on? Like, I mean, aren't some of these states opening it up because they've kind of run out of people in the – you know, like the older age, like Alaska and Mississippi, if are, it, yeah. you can get it from anybody. That's right. Anybody That's right. can get it right now. That and I assume mean- that is in part because they've kind of, you know, essentially, you know, and, and they're whatever their versions, the groups 1A, 1B, 1C. They're but Shane, it's to- not just that they're saturated. It's about demand as well. So well, no, I can- I, that's right. But I'm saying that, like, you know, I mean not every state is converging to the same number. And so looking at the rates at which they're converging to like a different, t- I, I guess I don't really you're understand what the comparison my fun is away with this Connecticut thing, man. Yeah. You're, you're really, you're really throwing a wet blanket on the Connecticut love. No, no. I mean, I, I love Connecticut too. Don't get me wrong, but like, I, I just, I, I kind of wonder what that's kind of going to really, you know, that's like, true. like Connecticut's probably converging to a different overall target at a different rate than Mississippi is, for example. That's right. That's fair. Well, that helps me build on Adi's second point about, and your question of him, Kate, about the refusal rate. So the recent, this is what also caught my, the recent poll that just came out is that 46% of Republicans say they won't get the vaccine. Now, my question becomes, by definition, and I'm sure the answer is no, but Adi can jump on me for this. Why not? Um, If that number is true, Will that prevent herd immunity? Uh, well, the only thing I have to say is that about a third of the country identifies as a Republican, maybe 40 percent, because there's a big chunk that identifies independent. So, uh, well, 46 of 40 percent. So let's say 18 percent of the country so refuses that, to get the back. Now, of course, again, some of them may have had COVID. A lot of them may have had COVID and therefore that, yeah. another issue. But I think also, I mean, I don't think it's that much different from the percentage of Democrats that don't want it. Or you're saying no, it's 10%. percent. It. Oh, it's only 10% of Democrats have said they will not take the vaccine. 46% of Republicans. Is that true? I, yes. I, I, I it's love true. Well, it's a stated, it's stated intention data. You don't have to like surveys, but right, I'm just right, telling right. you the data from the survey. Are they saying they'll never take it or they're just sort of reluctant? Because there's two, they're usually, they break it down into different buckets. This uh, is the, I mean, I, I don't know the exact wording of the question, but my interpretation of it is will not take. Well, so uh, that's the thing that concerns me the most. Uh, also had some conversations down here in Florida with people who are very reluctant to take it. They are younger people who have been, uh, are concerned about the side effects. And one of the reasons why I think that there's ginning up uh, uh, maybe on the social media, on the internet, the idea that there's serious side effects. There are occasional side effects about one, I think in Israel reports hospitalizations of about 10 out of a million people who get vaccinated have a serious enough side effect that requires- Are you talking about anaphylaxis or are you talking about some other form? I'm saying anything that requires hospitalization. Um, There is about one in 10,000 requires attention from a doctor, um, but doesn't require hospitalization. So yeah, there are, there are side effects. Some of these could might, and may not be side effects at all. They're just going to be coincidence. You got your virus and then, and then something happened that what is going to happen anyway. They just didn't know. I mean, what that or, the, or, or, or they're seeing news report. I mean, I think a lot of it right. is like me to report, like, I mean, you know, what's happening with the AstraZeneca one where it's actually being, you know, shut down in several countries. I mean, of course that's not the vaccine they would be getting in Florida, but that they probably attribute so, that to a general risk of vaccines. But you have to realize there is, there is, there are going to be side effects. There also are people who are getting substantially sick. 
I mean, it's temporary, but you do get a fever. Some people get fever, fatigue, shakes, and, and this is out there and it's often quite exaggerated. That's true. And then particularly as you get to younger people, the consequences of COVID are much less significant. And so people are sitting there making this cost-benefit analysis and they're saying it's a new vaccine, untested. There's a lot of talk about it being untested. I don't think that's warranted or, or, or honest, even though it was it was a time frame that we haven't seen before. I don't hold by any of those things. I think it is as safe as, safe as any vaccine we've had. I think it is as well tested as anything we've had. Um, but uh, there's certainly a community out there that is going to be very reluctant to take it. And again, just I'm, I'm not arguing that they should think this way. But I mean, you know, again, if you were to kind of take the economics like thought process forward, mm-hmm. you know, if there are side effects, potential side effects of the vaccine, you know, you do. I mean, I mean, you most benefit by everybody else taking it except for you, right? <laughs> yep. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's the correct way to think about it. It's certainly not the holistic way to think about it, but. You know, that, I, was just I, I mean, Adi, if it turns out that 46 of 40 percent don't get the vaccine. And so that means that that already cuts the cap to at most 85 percent of the population will get the vaccine. And then there's people that may not get it for other reasons, whatever. Are we getting to a point where we basically need 90 percent of 85 percent to reach herd immunity and therefore its likelihood um, is significantly diminished? Well, the people who don't get the uh, we can, we'll, we can, we'll still get to herd immunity. It's just. It'll be through a mixture of the vaccine and the people that aren't vaccinating still getting COVID. Well, I mean, unless, unless you feel that getting, I mean, unless you, that's no longer confers immunity or something like that, that somehow the vaccine gives you a, a different type of immunity that is like which a little it bit might more towards, permanent, which, it might which is variants. a little bit more permanent towards variants, but, yep, you know. So guys, we're going to be out of time on this, on this quarter, but something we need to take up more in future weeks is the question of international deployment of the vaccines. We're focused on the U.S. and that's understandable, but there's a lot of debate. We talked about it briefly last week, and increasingly there's a public debate on the optimal sharing, if you will. And one could do that for pragmatic reasons or one could do it for philosophical reasons, but it's going to be a really interesting issue to watch going forward on what happens once we do saturate the U.S. for whatever reason. Some folks aren't going to want it. What happens with the supplies that have been garnered here, built up here, and how we optimally deploy them around the world. Interesting question for uh, future weeks. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back. Rolling into the second quarter, second of four quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week, Sirius XM. We've been doing it for seven years. You guys can jump into the conversation in a way. You can ring us up on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle there, at W Moneyball. We love hearing from you, getting questions, topic ideas, complaints, whatever you got. You can also hit us up via email. We have a mailbag of sorts. We do dip into it and respond as often as we can. We love hearing from you by email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. This is one of our open lines, open sports segments. Joined here by Eric Bradlow, my longtime friend and colleague at Wharton School. Eric, around the world of sports, wide open. It's not the heat of really anything, but maybe, you know, March Madness. What are you paying attention to? What's caught your eye? There's actually a lot of things that have caught my eye recently, but probably the one that was most recent would have been, I think everybody that's been listening to our show knows I'm a huge golf fan. Um, If I could only play a little better than my interest was in the sport, but... um, 
you know, Hold on, Eric, how often, how often do you play? I don't, I don't hear about your playing that much. No, I've, I've, I've played. Well, we have a mutual friend who I used to play with every week, as you know, for about five years, but that yeah. was probably 20 years ago. Right. And so I've probably played two or three times in the last 20 years, but I used oh, to, okay. I played a lot in my late twenties and early thirties. And I was realistically, I was a mid nineties golfer, no better, look, no worse. Look, if you'd have just stayed in the corporate world and stayed close to that DuPont headquarters golf course, you could have dropped that down to single digits, man. You'd have your game by now. I think I, I would have had more game than I have now, but I have two sons that have some game. So that's, that's good. The, and maybe I'll get back into it, but I was watching a lot of golf this weekend, but I always watch golf, but there was something really interesting that happened this weekend. So for the second Sunday in a row, the same two players were in the final pairing and you brought it up off air about when the last time, I don't even remember that ever happening. I mean, in this case, it was Bryson DeChambeau who as everybody knows is the big muscle man of golf who hits the ball, you know, 25, 30 yards farther than everyone else. Strokes gained off the tee. Massive player. Um, and Lee Westwood, a 47-year-old. <laughs> former number so one in the world, actually. And former yeah. number one in the world. But um, Eric, for emphasis on former. That's what's so crazy about this particular event. Because, one, it just doesn't happen very often. But then for it to happen in such an odd juxtaposition. I mean, Lee Westwood hasn't been this competitive in some time. And then all of a sudden, he's at the top of the board two Sundays in a row. So by I the way, they, so there was a little bit of talk on when the last time it was, I think it was 06, 07, 08, something like that. It was Adam Scott and VJ Singh. But the weird thing about it is that it split season. So it was the last tournament of one season and the first tournament of the other. So it wasn't even back to back. Now, what may be a little bit less surprising is, you know, we mock momentum arguments around here. Uh, what do you mean? We, we, this part <laughs> of we does not. Of us, three of us, but I'm just, my, my allies in that battle are not here right now. But golf is a sport where there's a fair right. bit of momentum. There's, there is guys, I don't know if you want to call it regime shifts or what, what, but there is definitely a fair bit of momentum. You model these guys' performance, and there's some out of correlation year. I mean, season, I mean, I don't mean that week to week, tournament to tournament. Yeah, well, I mean, I think your golf swing has variability to it, but guys, golf swings, you play golf. I mean, your, your swing sometimes gets locked in. And so it is, you know, you could view it as two straight weeks, or you could view it as, a guy has his form together for eight rounds in a row. I mean, you call it two weeks, but it's not like it's six months in between their playing. There was, you know, four days in between. He stopped playing Sunday. Then he probably practiced rounds Tuesday and Wednesday at the course. He probably had one day off. They were both in Florida. Um, and so that's not that surprising to me that someone could have eight rounds kind of being locked in in some way like that. That is not surprising to me at all. I suppose um, in that way, it might be more surprising that it happened back to back with months apart as it did with Scott and seeing as opposed to just this. This was just a few days apart. Now, they were different courses, uh, the TPC being much more uh, accuracy um, dependent. But DeChambeau, um, I mean, clearly he's at the top of the, of the game these days. He didn't get it done here. Justin Thomas snuck in. I think he might have been four back at the start of the day. Westwood was right there but um, couldn't get it done. I love yeah. seeing, I mean, us old guys have to be pulling for Westwood, right? Yeah, I was pulling for Westwood, but I will say it again. This is the challenge when you're, you know, 47 is not young for golf. That's not saying anything there. He's a young man, but he's, that's not young for golf. And so when the pressure came down, who beat him? 
two guys in their mid to late 20s in their peak of performance. And, you know, he played fine. He shot 71. That's what I would expect an old guy to shoot. You know, didn't shoot hard, (laughs) didn't shoot 75, didn't shoot 65. He shot just well enough to lose. And that's what tends to happen on older players is that they just can't quite get it done when the pressure is really on. Eric, do we know much about that physiologically? And for the longest time, it struck me as weird that it would go that way because you would think that experience in these big moments would help you build some immunity to the pressure, or at least some, you know, some, some, you become, you become accustomed to it or you learn how to act within that pressure. But it, it seems like it does at some point turn over and age is not your friend. I mean, famously, you know, the yips in golf is something Correct. that happens to older guys. It doesn't happen to younger guys. Do we know anything about the physiology of choking and age or pressure and age or do anything about the psychology of pressure and age? Yeah, I, I would say actually what you've brought up is I think both of those could be at play, which means there's two forces at play, right? One force is the aging curve, which means in my view, I don't look at so much as a degradation in mean. I look at it as, an, as I've said many times in our show, an increase in variance. Sometimes you get the really good Lee Westwood and sometimes you get the 47-year-old Lee Westwood. So to me, I think the mean could be the same. I, matter of fact, I don't think his stroke average is worse than it was 10 years ago. Maybe it's slightly worse, but what's worse is his variance is much higher. He can go out and shoot 75 just as easily as he can shoot 65. And that's Mm -hmm. what happens when you get older. But on the other hand, you're pointing out you have experience going for you. So the counterfactual we can't do is you're making an assumption that if the variance is higher, the experience isn't happening. It could be shut off the experience. He might've done even worse. Mm-hmm. Like, so mm-hmm. as far as we know, both of these forces are at play. And again, what, en- what, what seemed to happen is, and this is that um, the younger player just had that next gear where they could say, you know what, damn it, I'm eagling this hole. Or you know what, I'm getting this ball close to the hole. And Westwood, like many older players, he seemed like he was playing not to lose. He just seemed conservative. He wasn't going for his shots as much as I've seen. He wasn't trying to get the ball really near the hole. Well, you know, Eric, you you lose more in golf than you win. It's a little bit like a batting average, I suppose. And I wonder if over a lifetime of golf, you collect more memories of failures than you do memories of successes. So when you're- Unless you're Tiger Woods. Look, this is why what you've brought up, let's remember, in the last two weeks, Lee Westwood has lost as many 50 four-hole leads as Tiger Woods now has in his entire career. (laughs) No, no. I mean, Tiger Woods is 48 and two in in, in his career. Uh, with a 54-hole lead. And so, you know, that's the amazing Well, um, it's been good fun. I, I don't know what's behind his resurgence, but um, hopefully it keeps going. Also, I just want to note that Jordan Spieth is playing some decent golf these days, and that makes me happy as well. Maybe he'll stick around. Eric, I want to change sports on you. Um, Marvin Hagler died this week, just in the last couple of days. I, I'm sure it caught your eye. He was at his peak when we were kind of at coming of age as sports fans. Yep. And there was that great era in boxing. He, he came around about the time Sugar Ray Leonard was around, maybe towards the end of Sugar Ray Leonard. And then Hearns was in there. And I know you, you think that the Hearns-Hagler fight in 85 was the best fight you've ever seen. Talk no, I don't think it is. That. I know it was – well, I can stay – I didn't say it was the greatest fight it's ever. I said it was the greatest fight I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so, um, look, this was the wonderful age, golden age of sports. And this was um, – 
the greatest time of the middleweights. Because let's remember, when you think about the most famous middleweights of all time, you've got to think about Sugar Ray Leonard. You've got to think about Marvin Hagler. You've got to think about the hitman Thomas Hearns. You've got to think about Roberto Duran. They were all in the same era. Incredible. These guys fought each other. And, you know, Marvin Hagler's career was right to me in the following sense. It was the greatest two and a half rounds of boxing I've ever seen when he fought Hearns. And I went this way. I was so excited about this fight. I didn't see it live. It was at Caesars Palace. I was a student here at Penn. But I did go down to the spectrum and watched it with 20,000 fans. So I was in the (laughs) spectrum watching this fight. That's number one. And then number two, I remember, just like it was yesterday, his fight against Sugar Ray Leonard, which was the fight after that, where... Sugar Ray Leonard couldn't do anything. Just was dancing around, you know, jabbing him a little bit. And I agree with Hagler. They stole that fight from him, and he never fought again. That was mm-hmm. his last fight. He refused mm-hmm. to fight. He's like, this guy's just tapping around, this and that. Hagler was drilling him with punches, and Sugar Ray Leonard looked better in the ring. But every, there's no way – Sugar Ray Leonard could have fought him a 1,000 rounds, and he wasn't going to hurt Marvin Hagler in that fight. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was – he was a great – great fighter and it was the greatest eight minutes of boxing I ever saw and I'm and I always think about peak performance in that fight the thing was amazing about it is it was the best I ever saw Thomas Hearns fight and I watched Mm -hmm. Hearns every one of his fights in that era Mm -hmm. he was at his best Hagler was at his best Hagler was just better and Mm -hmm. I think if I had to rank the four of them not I'm not taking their career Hagler Hearns Duran Leonard Hagler had the highest peak at the at his peak he was the best fighter of those four. So, Eric, your enthusiasm for the fight makes me want to go track it down. I mean, that's something it's easy that, to watch. Go watch it. Yeah, those things are all available. We just don't we don't do it enough. But talk talk to me a little bit about judging in boxing. It's it's of the you know it's not quite a major sport, but it's pretty high up there, and, and it has it had its day as as one of the big sports in America. But it's subjectively determined unless there's a knockout. How much shadiness and subjectivity? era did we see in in the in in boxing back in the day you just talked about the the judges stealing around stealing a match by leonard over Hagler. what's your sense now of how good or not good the judging was in that era well let's be clear about something first of all you'd be as as good to answer that as i am and i'll say why in just a second remember now like in the olympics it's all done by CompuStat boxing. In other mm-hmm. words, there's actually um, – you can measure the number of punches. Um, yeah. You can measure the hit rate. In other words, how many you throw and how many actually land. And all of that is done based on computers and automatically now because mm-hmm. there was so much – I don't want to call it corruption. Um, let's call it increased subjectivity that mm-hmm. people were just losing interest. In fact, you brought up why there's lost a lot of interest in the sport. People are like, they stole that fight. Like, you knew mm-hmm. that person was going to win. So they moved it to computers. And we talk about that in baseball. Can you do that? We've talked about it in other sports. Um, mm-hmm. I think the beautiful thing that you should do right now is this is what's kept now. Judges now actually have to um, – justify themselves because if they say you know Cade Massey beat Eric Bradlow 10 to 9 in round four great let's see what the actual numbers say though and the thing is just like with umpires after the game you can say you miss this you miss that they're doing the same in boxing now and the good thing is it's getting um uh, the judges to be more calibrated because a judge said oh Fighter X won this round, and everyone's like, actually, the CompuStat numbers say just the opposite. And so my view is a a positive way to look at all of this isn't about replacing judges. It's about um, 
helping them be better calibrated. And I yeah. think that's a great use of, let's call it automatic scoring systems. Well, it's a, it, it's a, it's a great example. We talk about baseball a lot and we've, and it's been studied in baseball a lot and the change in accuracy among umpires when they started tracking the, the actual balls and strikes and giving them feedback is remarkable. I mean, you're just cruising along at whatever the accuracy was, low 90s or something, and it hits that feedback, and there's just a linear increase year over year of the accuracy as they start getting feedback, and they improve. You can't learn without the kind of feedback that they started receiving, and um, it's interesting to hear that they've moved, moved boxing that way. You're talking about the touches showing up in the scores. Isn't that what they do? With, how do they score fencing? Aren't there like little sensors in fencing? Absolutely. Actually- yeah, yeah. Fencing, it literally is touch. Now, of course, the difference in fencing is I'm no expert in it at all, but I don't think the um, the thrust or the, the force in the touch plays any role. A touch is a touch. Okay. Obviously, in boxing, they can actually measure now because of sensors in the gloves. They can measure not only did I hit you, but with what force do I hit you? So mm-hmm. in theory, they could... You know, you could compute all kinds of statistics. No, no, we're statistician types. So how about the following? How about who hit the other person with the hardest punch? How about the distribution of punches you hit me with, with versus the distribution of punches I hit you with? How about mm-hmm. the total force of the punches I hit you with versus mm-hmm. the total force of the punches I hit you with? How about if I knock you out? This is another way to, for health and safety in boxing. If I hit you with a punch that shouldn't, let's call it the 75th percentile of force, it, and it shouldn't knock you out. Maybe this person's now more prone to concussions, and therefore there's something you could tell a fighter to protect himself more. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity using the data that's coming out of this for training, for safety, for scoring. I think it's a great opportunity. I'd love to have that data. Well, the, the, score, the scoring bit, as you were talking that through, it struck me that I, I'm curious how they aggregate up all these touches because – they've got infinite degrees of freedom and how they do that. Right. So no, but what you just described is why they say you need judges. You can't no, have, you can't just have a computer. I mean, yeah, sure. If you, you well, could, another way to do it is it's endogenous. If you tell the fighter that to win the fight, this is what they need to do. Then they'll fight differently. If it's purely the most amount of touches, I'll just dance around. Bing, 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 bing. If it's total force of the punches, I'll just load up for the heavy punch. I mean, you'd have to set that objective function before you score the fight. Well, where I was going was you presumably could train, you could train the algorithm with expert judges. So if you you get enough of these, you get the counts on one hand and you get the expert judgments of the overall performance on the other hand, and you start building the algorithm that actually best mimics the expert judges. It would take a lot to do because there's different ways to win a match, but you could move in that direction. But you're, you're, I, I agree with you that you don't want to go straight. You don't want to go straight computer with this stuff, but it's a far cry from the Hagler days. And so it's interesting to see that technology has had that move. Let's talk a little bit about NFL. It's the quiet season. The, the draft is ramping up, but things are happening. So Brady just got a new contract and Breeze retired. So the longtime suspicion was confirmed. The, the, long, the, the great quarterback out of new Orleans has hung it up. We saw his last game. We kind of felt like we were seeing his last game and indeed he's gone. So and your boy's back and Gronk is back too, Eric. What's what you, you, are you happy about the way the bucks are looking? Oh, well, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, it helps. Well, first of all, it helps that Tom Brady has had a 20 year career and has made like four to $500 million. It also helps that he's married to the 
most successful and lucrative supermodel on the planet. So, I mean, it's not like he need, even if he got paid zero dollars, it's not like his family. So what did they what did they sign him for? And so. Yep. So they signed him. It, it depends how many years you want to count it. And so he's making, I think, $25 million, but it's spread now over more years. So he literally saved them $19 million on the cap, which okay. brought them from $4 million over the cap to $15 million under the cap. Now, what did they do with that money? So besides re-signing Gronk, they also re-signed Shaq Barrett, the pass rusher who um, played last year under the... Uh, a franchise tag. They signed him to a four-year, $72 million. And um, their plan is um, they re-signed Levante David for two years and $20 million. Um, and the hope is, is they're going to re-sign Antonio Brown. The hope is that they're going to re-sign uh, Indomitian Sue um, and uh, maybe even uh, touchdown Lenny, Leonard Fournette. And so uh, you know, the hope is that, um, as I'll put it, as Tom Brady said, Tom Brady's saying, um, I'm hoping the band gets back together. And so, I don't see any reason, by the way, if you think about it, the only two positions where you could argue that the Bucks are old is a quarterback. And I don't see any reason there'd be a steep decline in Brady's performance next year. Maybe there will, but I don't know why. And actually, Leonard Fournette's a lot older than you think. It and has so, been foretold for like a decade, that decline, by the way. Yeah, Exactly. So, but are you, how you're saying that Brady just cut him some slack. He's got enough money. He's not worried about it. He cares about championships. So he's coming in at something like 60% of market. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he is coming at 60% of market and Shane can be our expert. I'm sure if you look at Brady over the last 10 years, he's come in at 60% of market. I mean, he, I don't think he's ever been the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. And what's more important again, is it's less about how much he gets paid with how they structure his contract, which means, look, if Brady, Shaq Barrett, Indomitian Sue, all these guys are off the team in three years. The Bucs have done what every team should do in the NFL. In the NFL, you don't build for the super long haul. You have a two- or three-year window. And think about it. Even the you say, well, Brady's done it. No, here's what Brady's done. Brady's won three championships. Let's forget the one with the Bucs for a second. He's won three championships twice with 11 or 12 years in between where they won no championships. Let's not make it seem like he's won every year. He won three in four years, didn't win, I think, for roughly 11 or 12 years. Then he won another three in four or five years. And then he happened to go to the Bucks and won another one. But you build for these short bursts. That's what you do. And you know what? If the Bucks win two or three championships and don't win for another 10 years, we'll be saying it's our 17th year on Wharton Moneyball, and I'll be very happy. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I mean – I. I, I think that, you know, I mean, the Patriots did kind of go through rebuilds. It's just, the you know, with Belichick as the coach and with Brady as the quarterback, there's kind of a, a like a floor on what a rebuild looks like. You know, there were years there where the Patriots weren't kind of guaranteed for the AFC championship game or whatever like that. They weren't. And, and you know, there was those those were kind of the, you know, I guess the. uh the kind of weak years or whatever. And we're kind of seeing what without Brady, a Patriots rebuild looks like, and it looks like it's going to be a kind of a quick turnaround, even on the Patriots going into next season. But yeah, I mean, and, and I think Brady, I mean, I think there's the first order effect that Brady himself takes kind of below what he could as far as, you know, what his cap is. And I think he also, I guess, inspires teammates to do so the same. I mean, it seems like Shaq Barrett took, you know, what seems to be like a below market. I mean, it's a little bit hard to gauge because, you know, with the cap going down, maybe everything's a little bit below market this off season, but it certainly seems like a lot of the 
kind of deals that it took to resign a lot of these bucks, they're kind of taking hometown discounts. And I can only imagine that's only because Brady's sticking around there for a year, another year or two. Well, let me just point out that it seems um, when you have a 43 year old quarterback, they have the highest, really high probability of becoming a lot, a very different person in the next season. And that's gotta be in some format, some way encountered in the, in the, in the value, the expected value, or which is essentially what you want to pay someone. I mean, a 26 year old does not have the same expectation of what they will do next year. Now Brady's funny that way because I'm, I've been eating my words every single year now. I mean, you know, this every year, this is going to be the year we had always expected based on historical performance of quarterbacks that at age 40, they just fall off a table. Obviously he didn't do that. Um, and, but now is it getting more likely or is it next year or is it just the same small number? I don't know. I think it's got to, his performance has got to degrade. Let's talk about the other end. We're talking about the oldest guy in the NFL. We're talking about the story that we've been talking about for the longest time. Let's talk about the newcomers. There's no combine this year, which takes about, I don't know, 12 hours of Eric's TV watching off the menu, but there have been pro days. They've, They've basically distributed the combine across all the campuses now pro days are always something that's happened it's just that they're doing all of the drills and there's been some standardization of the drills but they're just going school by school and they're limiting the number of guys that can show up and there's not as much media fanfare but they're slowly getting the combine numbers kind of in the books have you paid any attention to this are there any stories eric i know you've been missing it yeah i mean look i love the combine because i you know to me um, I love the I love watching these guys run the 40 yard dash. Um, I like watching these guys do, uh, you know, whatever that is when they the vertical leap measurement. Um, I think those things are predictive of performance in the NFL. And, you know, uh, you can't teach speed. You can't, uh, you know, jumping ability, I think, does matter for wide receivers in certain positions. And I enjoy watching that. And um, I think it's interesting. Um, pro days. The problem I have to me, to me, it's like professional wrestling. Half that stuff is scripted. And, you know, uh, and it's also guys that have thrown to each other maybe for two years, three years, four years. That's very different than someone working in a new system. So mm-hmm. I'm not as convinced that there's as much information in pro days, but um, I'm int- I, I would watch pro days too. Eric, you need to get yourself on, on campus for a pro day one of these days. You know, Penn had a receiver come out a couple of years ago, and I went to the pro you day. You mean the Buccaneers, Justin Watson? Yeah, Are, Justin Watson. You mean Watson. the NFL he, champion, Justin Watson? Is that who you're referring to? He went, he, went, he went to your team, and the pro day that year, it was just – they're just fun. And whenever they talk about guys doing better, they talk about kind of home cooking and hand times, and there's always – our friends at PFF compared the data. I think it was PFF. Maybe it was Hermsmeyer on 538 comparing combine data to pro day data. And there are some advantages to pro days, but some of it is just, I mean, they're surrounded by teammates who are urging them on and you know, they're trying to get how many reps they're going to get in the weight room. And you got 35 guys in close quarters yelling for you to do it. You get an extra rep, it turns out. So there are some benefits like that, but it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun at the very least, but this is an interesting year with all of these challenges for the NFL teams. They're just getting, you know, some of these teams have models. They've got years of data now, and everything's different this year. So it's going to be an unusual draft, to say the least. Um, and it coincides with kind of, a, you know, the lead into this draft is an unusual year of free agency where there's just a lot more, I think, you know, kind of, I, I think teams are a lot, a lot of teams are a lot more cost constrained. So I think the kind of player movement on the free agent level mm-hmm. might be kind of greater as well. So, I mean, that's right. kind of like 
combined. So I mean, it's, it's, it's a very unusual kind of off season in, t- in at least two dimensions. Shane, you're talking about the salary cap contracted yeah. this year. It never yeah. contracts. I mean, this thing is always right. going up. They double this thing in you know five or six years. Well, and it came down this year, which really changes the calculus. around. Well, Shane, you're also combining the fact that we have less game data. So we have less game data. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. this is a wonderful year to measure how much we kind of can really forecast players. Because in some sense, there's, you could argue, because of COVID, there's maybe less stuff that happened on the field. You know, and now we got less pro day data. And so this is, it would be interesting. Matter of fact, what I'm very interested in is, does it lead to, fir- to uh, teams recognizing that they know less, that there's more uncertainty, and maybe, therefore, these crazy trades that we see teams giving tons and tons of assets for moving up one or two slots in the draft, maybe this is not the year to do it, because while there is a rank ordering, there's more uncertainty in it. Well, so, I mean, well, just from a, from a decision-theoretic perspective, if you did just dial up the uncertainty, if you said the 2021 draft, it, look, it's always uncertain. It's probably more uncertain than, than these guys like to admit. It's even more uncertain this year. What would that suggest as for optimal drafting strategy? Trade, uh, trade down as much as get as many picks as you can. That's the right. Yeah, accum- I, I guess accumulate picks. If, you, if you're much even less sure this year than you usually would be, that's right. trade down, accumulate picks for subsequent years. Now, unfortunately, it takes two. At the same time, if, you, if you're the one team that does still know what they're doing, this is an awesome opportunity to maybe have additional arbitrage over other teams. Okay, guys, so we can start. We can we will tee up an over-under question between now and the end of April on the number of trades we see. We had this, we had a similar thing last year because all the GMs were quarantined off in their own houses without the they were usually surrounded by all their support systems. And we speculated on what impact that would have on trades. And it did have a quieting, diminishing impact on trades. So we'll have a bet. We'll have a mm-hmm. bet sometime in the next six weeks on what the impact of the higher uncertainty in this draft will have on the number of trades that we observe. Adi. Well, I mean, I have a a technical question. I think it's important. How many new players can a team kind of take on in a given season? Can you take, you can't, I mean, there's the draft has seven rounds, right? Um, And then it might be a couple extra. So you clearly can take on 10 or maybe everyone can easily handle say 10 new players but what can you really take on? I mean, you have your. You're not talking about the it. theoretical limit because you could. No, no, I don't mean theoretical. I mean practically. How are you going to make a decision? On how many new players can you really bring on board? And I mean, if you're the Jets, probably forty, right? <laughs> Just get rid of the whole thing. Bring well, a new one. It's literally a processing question. Like how much? How many reps can you get? How much of a look can you get at how many yeah. guys given the limited time? Because all of these things are regulated by the union. You only get so much time in mini camp you only get so much time in training camp and so you've got you do have a limited number of hours and man you know man eyes on these guys it's a very good question i i do think it's comfortably above what most teams take you know so that i think it's more a theoretical um rejoinder to the trade down idea than than practical but there is a practical limit and it's not going to be a whole lot beyond 10 12 kind of thing i mean teams usually We'll pick seven or eight, and then they'll sign some undrafted free agents. And so they're routinely coming in with 10, 12 or Aren't more. The normal, yeah, I mean, normal that about 90 some odd people come to camp. Then there's a set, cut down to like 75. And then eventually there's the cut down to the 53 man th- roster with the seven or eight on the practice squad kind of thing. But I think, I think Audie's really speaking to the turnover. Like, you know, if you were to like, like how many, like, I mean, what, what's kind of, you know, how many, 
what, what's the highest proportion of your 55 final 55 or whatever that you essentially turn over that in you one might keep. off season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think if I, you know, I would, I, I would immediately, if I wanted at least some amount, you know, kind of indication of this, well, what would, what was Miami a couple years ago? I mean, you know, look, look at the kind of more obvious quote unquote tank jobs that have been happening you know, they're not, they don't happen all the time, but the kind of more obvious tank jobs where, you know, a team does just kind of basically clean house and sort of see, for example, Miami a couple of years ago, how many people did they turn over? Yeah, be, that that's, those are number, that's a noble thing, like the distribution of turnover in, on an NFL roster in recent years. Guys, before we go to the break, um, Shane has actually done some official research on these combine data. Shane had a paper a couple of years yeah. ago on forecasting tight end performance in the NFL based on college performance and on combine data so shane you actually have an answer to the question of how important are these combine data these yeah and i mean the important i mean call it i i'll say two things college is more important the college performance is more important than combine if you had to use variables based on just combine or just college you'd be better off using college and combine the combine kind of predictors are overweighted in actual drafting strategies relative to kind of what they optimally would be. If you kind of retrospectively see what players contribute kind of looking back versus how they were valued in the draft, the combine is overvalued, which isn't to say it has zero value. It does have diagnostic value and, you know, combine on top, a combine and college on top of each other properly kind of weighted does a much better than just college, but the combine in general is kind of overweighted relative college. So how, how would you deal with the argument that, for the top end players, I don't know how exactly your analysis, maybe you can yeah. describe it just briefly. For the top end players, maybe combine doesn't add as much, but for the Jerry Rices of the world, the Mississippi Valley State players, combine adds a lot. So did you look at it depending on where someone is in the distribution? Not really, because again, we were, I mean, we have extended this to kind of wide receivers as well, but at least our initial analysis was just tight ends where you don't get necessarily, I mean, there's not a lot of top 10 tight ends, you know, and out there and stuff like that. So I, I don't think we necessarily have the spread per round that you'd need to kind of, and the counts per round that you'd need to kind of do that properly just with tight ends. But when we looked at wide receivers, it does seem like, you know, uh, there is some, maybe there is some extra somewhat diagnostic value to like, you know, like the Jerry Rice is like somehow diagnosing the Jerry Rice's of the world and stuff. Well, what like you're that, basically but. saying is the, the performance data is less diagnostic for these guys who play in off leagues. That's it's what I'm saying. Playing, yeah. Not only not playing power five football, they're not even playing division one football or FBS. And so you need, you necessarily put more information, more weight on the other information. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Nothing. No, and I mean, that. that's, a, that's a great point because actually, you know, we did sort of like certainly had things like did, you know, coming from a power five conference just by itself is a huge predictor essentially of, of draft slot and expectations. Um, but I don't think we necessarily looked at that, that you're kind of almost suggesting an interaction effect where, you yeah. know, not, not power five, makes the combine itself more predictive, the combine measures itself more predictive. And I don't think we actually explored that, but that's We're a like an old married idea. couple. I'm exactly talking about an interaction yeah. effect between the two. Right. But it's, it, it, there people struggle with how to model FCS performance. And how do you put that in their models? Like some, you know, we have a quarterback prospect this year coming out of North Dakota state that'll go in the first round. How do you really weigh his performance in college next to guys who you've seen play, you know, yeah. 40 power five games? Well, and Daniel, don't, Daniel Jones a couple of years ago was a, a, a similar example, right? Didn't he come out of Duke or something like that? Yeah. I'm sorry. Who did you Daniel say? Daniel Jones. Jones. The Giants quarterback? Well, yeah, it's, but that's not, as, that's not as tough. I mean, we're, we're accustomed. I mean, that's a, that's a power five team. It's ACC. 
it's not it's not what you you know it's Carson Wentz. Wentz? Wentz Wentz is a good example so these are the things that kind of break the models and and what you're suggesting is one kind of kludgy fix is to shift the weight to the combine data um, which yeah. is operable across players all right guys that has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball we still have two quarters to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Rolling into the third quarter now, another open lines segment, open topics segment in this Zoom world. We've got a few sports bouncing around. We are at the dawn of March Madness. We didn't have 2020 March Madness. We got it robbed from us right before it arrived. And so there's kind of more excitement than usual, I would say, about the 2021 version. Also, just as we talked about the uncertainty in the NFL draft being higher because of how rocky games and combines have been and missing information same with the tournament this year we have a lot of teams have missed long stretches and so it's much more uncertain who's actually the best of these teams they seeded this thing on sunday they kick it off on thursday i believe it's going to be a little bit later than usual usually open the first four on tuesday i think they're opening the first four on thursday but we're going to get underway this week one way or another what around this tournament has caught your eye and how much attention will, will you be paying it this coming weekend? Well, I mean, the number one thing that's caught my eye, of course, is the um, is Gonzaga. I mean, it's not often that we have a team going into the tournament that is uh, undefeated. And so they're 26-0. and 0. Um, I think every year but one, I think an undefeated team going into the tournament has at least made the final four. Obviously, the last time an undefeated team has won the tournament was 1976 in Indiana, coached by Bobby Knight. So, um, but there have been, you know, uh, UNLV went to the tournament undefeated one year. That was the year they got beaten by Duke in the finals. Um, I remember Illinois went to the tournament undefeated one year, I think. Um, and okay, so hold on. This is this is exciting. The Indiana was the last team to go in undefeated and win the dang thing. Correct. So, 1976 is the last undefeated season in college basketball. That is a long time ago. So what are the odds? What are the what are the bookmakers saying Gonzaga's odds are? Way, way too high. So they have Gonzaga two to one. Two to one? There's sixty-eight teams in this tournament. Don't wait, wait, wait. Two to one against or two to one in favor? against for sure doesn't matter doesn't matter it's too high i mean it would be even more too high if it was too so this is one of my pet theories about the tournament and and in in general on these multi-outcome possibilities is that people confuse psychologically most most likely with likely so everyone knows that Gonzaga is the favorite, but that doesn't mean that they're likely to win today. Look, if I told you, you wouldn't take two to one odds if I told you Gonzaga was in the final four. Yeah. Though it's interesting. 538 playing, but yeah, 538, like, which sure. are, 538, which has their usual ELO kind of simulation model, has Gonzaga's 27% to win the whole thing. Not Which again, from one to th- one know, third is what two to me, one. Me, you know, means yeah. that, you know, is that basically guaranteeing them into the final four? Well, just uh, to also let you know, here's some data that I just saw recently in the last 40 years or 35 years since whenever they expanded the field to 64, there's only been one time that all four number one seeds made it, mm-hmm. and something like only four times that even three out of four have made it. Uh, so most years, like 30 out of the 35 years, one or two 
or more of the number one seeds haven't even made it to the final four. You know, it's funny, Eric. Normally, we would be pulling against chalky outcomes, but whenever a chalky outcome is that least less likely, uh, that chalky outcome is exceedingly unlikely. It all, all of a sudden becomes something you might kind of pull for. It'd be fun to see four ones in there because it's so unusual. Can I ask a question? Uh, what do we think of the shortened season and all the uncertainty? Does that push the odds towards equal? In other words, is there shrinkage towards the middle? Or is there more, less shrinkage and we should trust what we're seeing a little bit because a dominant team has um, really got something going? I mean, I, I'm not, I, my well, inclination so let me, let me, shrink. Let me try an argument there because mostly I think it's unlikely, but maybe this is what they're saying about Gonzaga. Maybe they're saying, look, most teams aren't as strong this year as usual because of all the interruptions. The practices in the fall were weird. Mm -hmm. Teams have had breaks. So they're just not as strong. So if there is truly a strong team, if for some reason they've been able to navigate it more effectively than others, then there would be more separation between them and everybody else. Now, I, I suspect there's some version of that argument going on, and I don't believe it. I think that's a, that's a misperception and that it's crazy to think that Gonzaga is less affected by this thing or that our perceptions of Gonzaga are more accurate than... Well, I I mean, there are a couple of occurrences like Duke not even being in the tournament essentially due to COVID mm-hmm. is, an exa- is an example of what of, of the phenomenon you're trying to basically argue, right? Is that mm-hmm. like conditional on Gonzaga somehow getting through this whole thing, you know, relatively unaffected by COVID, the fact that there's other top teams being affected by COVID do improve its odds. I, I, I agree that I, I don't believe that to the extent that I give Gonzaga's high odds as the you know betters are make, giving it, but that, I mean that's an example of of a way in which Gonzaga has been given kind of an indirect advantage. You know, we, you know, we need to know we need to know real, real quickly, Adi. We need to know what the like the here's one way to think about it. What's the average total seed count of the final four? We could maybe right, speculate right, right, what right, that right, is, right, right, right. and and if we could come up with that number, I'm curious. I would strongly bet. Now, of course, you know, it's one year, anything could happen, but I would strongly bet on that number being larger this year than the average year. And so I just think it's like the, the parsimonious story is uncertainty is higher. We're going to see more upsets. We're going to see higher seeds, bigger, I mean, lower ranked teams go deeper into the tournament. Do we have any guess on what that number is? I have a guess on what that number so, is. So I'll come up with, let's independently come up with what we think the average seed of a final four team is. Over or the, the total road. seed, just multiply it by four. Yeah, total. Yeah, total. Yeah, so some, of the, some of the seeds for the final four. On some the of average. the seeds. I'm going to go, I'll, everyone come up with the number. I'll say first, I'm going to go, I'm going to go an average of a, of a one and a two and a four and a, no, one and two or three and four. I'm going to go real, real pedantic and go, 10. 10. Yeah, 10. That, that was what I was just doing too. <laughs> I think it's a little bit hot. My, my interval is going to be between 10 and 12. So I was somewhere in the neighborhood, but maybe a little higher. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to go over that. So I'm going to, because I think over that this year or over that historically? Historically, but not by much. I mean, you're saying that the, that because you no, remember, no. all it takes is an eight, <laughs> you know. To, uh, on average, if the, on average, if you get an eight, then you're going to be yeah. Uh, actually, probably the variance. Actually, now that I so think of it, that's a great point. Probably the variance year to year in that value is probably pretty high, just because it completely gets blown by like you know the occasional you know, nine, eight, nine. But do we over? Do we over? Which doesn't happen frequency. often. We pro- exactly. It probably doesn't happen. That we probably often. do. We probably do. We probably do. But that does definitely contribute to that. That's going to drive the variance. Okay, so whatever that number is, I'll put my money on that number being larger this year. 
Um, but the question I had, yeah, that, that's, that, that's the, uh, the, the odds the, appear to be arguing that it's going to be smaller this year. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know about one, certainly with Gonzaga, but I don't know what they look like. Uh, for the so, so, so the sure. question that I have is that there's two ways to do a power rank and that's really what we're doing here. We're doing power ranks for teams. One way to do the power rank is on the, um, the you know, the Bradley Terry ELO algorithm, which depends only on who played whom and who won. Another would be to kind of build up the players on the team and look at their, you know, have a score for every player. Like a, like there's a, you know, you have all kinds of uh, adjusted plus minus scores for players. One of our students is actually building one, Jake Flancer, for, for college basketball. He's been working on it uh, pretty intensely. Um, could you take the, the individual scores for the players and build them up? And how would that, how, which one do you think would be better in this sort of shortened season? So, Adi, let me just point out that this is the way things are done in basketball these days. I mean, baseball started this and then basketball eventually started doing it. And now a very important part of basketball forecasting and basketball betting is even forecasting playing time because the team strength over 48 minutes depends on how many minutes each player plays. And so you've got this hierarchical model. So basketball's gotten there and now football's going there. And that's going to be the last sport to get there because you got to put 22 guys on the field. But that's definitely where analytics have gone. And it's the more players, the more challenging, but it's fun. And Right now, while we have these imperfect models, there's very much a value in top-down and value in bottom-up. You need to look at it both ways. You're asking, is the uncertainty of the season privileging one side or the other? Yep, yep. And in college basketball, I don't think they do the, the, the what I think you call the bottom-up modeling. That's not customary. No, because it's much harder to get those data, and there's more. There's, I mean, there's 300 Division One teams. That's it's right. just absurd right. number. I mean, I can't believe Flancer's working on that. But if he can come up with something, he'll have an edge somewhere because don't, other people don't don't have it. But um, let's talk about we 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 talked to uh, our 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 frequent guest Ken Pomeroy a couple of weeks ago, and there was an article in the Sporting News a couple of days ago talking about forecasting the tournament using KenPom.com. So Pomeroy's got a pretty good track record, at least as public analytics models go with the March Madness tournament. And so this sporting news writer just goes through and picks a few things. And so let me just give you some highlights. If you're filling out a bracket, you want a little bit of analytics advice. This is Ken Palm via sporting news. He says, most likely first round upsets. Let me just give you the list real quick. Wisconsin over Carolina. That's a 10, a nine over an eight. Not terribly interesting. Rutgers over Clemson. That's a 10 over a seven. St. Bonaventure over LSU, again, 9-8. That's not really an upset. VCU over Oregon, a 10-7. Vatek over Florida, a 10-7. Maryland over Connecticut, a 10-7. And then we've got a couple 11-6s to keep your eye on. Utah State over Texas Tech. Sorry about that family up there in the panel. And UCLA, over B, if they make it in, over BYU. A couple 11-6 possibilities for you. We're talking March Madness here in the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Got the whole crew in here, Adi, Shane, Eric, and this is Cade. Just covered the 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 uh, the most likely upsets according to the sporting news analysis of Ken Pomeroy's numbers. Pomeroy, of course, we talked to just a couple of weeks ago. Let me give you real quick, guys, most underrated teams in the tournament, most overrated teams in the tournament. This is for a little KenPom.com information in case you're filling out your brackets. Most underrated, Wisconsin, Loyola, Chicago, Connecticut, St. Bonaventure, USC, Maryland, Villanova, and Rutgers. And these are in order too. So Wisconsin is what Ken Palm's numbers say is the most underrated team in the tournament. They are, according to Ken Palm, number 10 in the country, but they're only seated number nine in their region, which is the South. He also loves Loyola, Chicago, which we talked about 
on the show. You can flip it around, look the other side. Most overrated teams in the tournament, according to Ken Palm. West Virginia coming in number one. Missouri two. Texas, that has to be a mistake. Texas, number three. Oklahoma State, number four. Clemson, five. Kansas, six. Vitek, seven. Florida, eight. So West Virginia, most overrated team in the tournament. There are three seed in the Midwest. That equates to what, guys? Something like a 10-11 seed, 10-11 best in the country, but Kim Pom says they're 27th. So a little bit of analytics for you if you're filling out your bracket. I a little thought, bit yeah. of history. Isn't this the first time Rutgers has been in it in something like 30 years? Yes. That's pretty yep. exciting. As far as kind of a little regional you know, teams to cheer I for. I think for me, just a sad part of it is I always look forward to the Ivy League team. And actually, in recent years, the Ivy League has won some games. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there was no Ivy League this year, no Ivy League play. So no, that automatic berth went to somebody else. There was another... Um, there was another open spot for the at-large teams because no Ivy League bid. Um, the other thing I was reading about was uh, from the betting markets was there's one team that betters def- the uh, casinos definitely don't want to win, and that's Michigan. Michigan started out the season as 125 to one. So there's somebody, there are two people apparently that put in thirty, thirty to forty thousand dollar bets on Michigan, and Michigan right now is the number one seed and is six to one. So they went from 125 to one to six to one. That is some pretty heavy, massive casino exposure for Michigan to actually win the tournament. Yeah, that's fun. It's going to be a fun year to watch it. Anybody, what, what rooting interest do you guys have? Like, is there a team out there that you like to follow? Or are, you have, are we are like complete, we're free agents when it comes to basketball, shy, me, and the University of Texas, and since, especially since Penn is not around. Adi? Well, I'm rooting for Stanford in the women's tournament. <laughs> I tend to go with regional ones. So, you know, Villanova, Rutgers, certainly that they're in it. I, you know, I think uh, – is, is it Drexel? Is uh, they're Drexel's a 16 seed? Well. Drexel will be momentary. I'll cheer for them for one, one game at least. <laughs> Drexel's an attorney. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, That's fantastic. I think I they're think matched was, up against Illinois or something like that. I don't so know that I pretty, root but. for him because you could argue as a person he's done some things that aren't rootable for. But it is interesting that Rick Pitino is bringing his fifth different team to the NCAA tournament. That's mm-hmm. Iona, mm-hmm. and so um, that's kind of interesting. And, and somebody I am rooting for. Um, you know, he should be a head coach in the pros now, but he's not. Is Patrick Ewing in Georgetown. Georgetown mm-hmm. won the uh, Big East tournament, and uh, they were not going to be making the tournament. And um, it was, you know, I'm rooting for that reason. Obviously, growing up a Nick fan, I wouldn't mind seeing Georgetown do well in the tournament, and I always root for Patrick Ewing. And, again, for a man who spent 15 years in a, as an assistant head coach in the NBA, um, he should have gotten a head coaching NBA job, but either way, it's great that he's back at his alma mater and it's great that they made the tournament this year. No, and it would be wonderful if he could make a run with, it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite of a Nick fan, but I think, you know, I, I don't mind, I, I like character hewing myself and I think it would be wonderful if he could have any kind of, you know, run that like just reminds me of some of the stuff he did in the eighties with Georgetown. What's, what's, what's interesting is, of course, the people that are Adi, uh, Kate, and my age, those guys are now the coaches. And these were the guys that were the players in our college days in Luth, like Jawan Howard right now mm-hmm. in Michigan. And, you know, obviously we just mentioned Patrick Ewing. And um, it's great to see so many of the players in my youth, you know, now actually be successful head coaches. That's a good point, Eric. And talking about that era, it reminds me of another team that I am pulling for because of that era, and that's U of H. So Houston's got a good team this year. They snuck in to about the last two seed, but they're a two seed. And again, it's one of Pomeroy's favorite teams. We talked about it a couple of years ago, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, but 
the five slamma jamma possibilities live, and it'll be fun to see if we can see those guys um, get a little run going. On the pro side, we've got injuries running amok in the NBA. What are we supposed to make of this? Are we, are we going to see Durant again? Embiid is now down. What are we, Anthony what's, Davis what's the for the Lakers. Yeah, I mean, look, big guys get injured, and injuries are going to play a large role in the final part of the season. Look, I, right now, if you tell me that the Nets have a healthy Durant, if, and a healthy Kyrie Irving, and a healthy James Harden, and a healthy Blake Griffin, they've got to be the favorite in the East. They just have to be. They have to be the favorite in the East, and possibly, in my view, by a fairly significant margin. And so, you know, whether they're going to beat whoever comes out of the West, I don't know. Um, but, you know, they look strong. Um, you know, L- Lakers, um, they're winning games, but, you know, Anthony Davis needs to be back. LeBron can't win. They can't win the title with LeBron and the rest of the squad that they have. They're just not good enough. They might be able to, I know, uh, I think Shane agrees with me. They may be able to get to the finals or get to the conference finals. I don't think LeBron and Kyle Kuzma and Dennis Schroeder, and that, that's not, I mean, that, would, that reminds me of the 2000, like, 10 Cavaliers who was LeBron and seven other players that are in, like, the top 100 in the NBA. NBA and maybe they get they, they can't win with that team I mean I agree kind of at least you know conditional on you know some of the other teams also not being kind of wiped out by injuries I mean I think there is a path to them winning the championship if Durant and all these guys don't come back and they you know get a little lucky over in the west but no I I, I agree I think Anthony Davis obviously is a pretty key component of that team let me give you just some 538 numbers to add to this conversation. The, they run their rankings and they, they call them full strength ratings. And so it, it does depend on having these guys back, but they do have the nets head and shoulders above everybody else with something like a 17% chance of making the, of winning the finals, a third of a chance of making the finals. Um, and then followed by the bucks in the East in third spot and the Clippers as the number one team out in the West with a 24, about a 24, 25% chance of making the playoffs. I just I'm don't, believe, I just don't believe in that team. I just don't, I just, I, if I, I'm going to find a way to short the Clippers because I'm going to tell you, I just, there's something about the chemistry and there's something about Paul George that he hasn't been able to come through in the big spot. He's been in the league now 10 years. Obviously I believe in Kawhi Leonard a lot, um, but there's something about that team that I'm just not, I, I just don't think they're going to get it done. I just do not. I do not have any faith in that team winning the title. None. Do we, do we have analyses of NBA player performance in clutch situations like we do in baseball? I mean, baseball routinely chop data by leverage. Do we have anything like that in basketball? Do we, could we, could we make that empirical, this claim you've suggested about Paul George, Adi? Hey, well, I can say that the results from the MLB is it routinely finds uh, there are people who appear to be clutch, but not more than you'd, you'd expect by chance alone. Hard to know whether that's pre- pre- predictable, reproducible, and generally gets excluded from any analysis, uh, for pre- forecasting analysis that we do, that's done in baseball. Basketball, I'm going to leave it to you guys. To, well, I can tell you I right mean, now, here's, here's, here's some stats. I, this is not exactly up to date. But um, as of February 23rd, 2019, in game tying or go-ahead shot situation, Paul George was 0 for 14. 
Um, as of 2017, Paul George was four for 30, 13.3%, and whatever they call a clutch situation. Um, of the 89 players in the NBA who had enough situations, he was 83rd out of 89 in clutch situations in the NBA. So I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, look, I'm not going to put all my weight in these metrics, but all I'm saying is, well, here's another one in 2017. He has the worst record at go-ahead shots in the final 20 seconds of the game in the history of the NBA. <laughs> okay. He so doesn't sound like say, he's I... the guy who needs the ball at the, in those last 20 seconds, certainly. I mean, I, th- I think it's – the trouble is, I mean, because, you know, there's so much interaction effect in basketball, like especially in those kind of last, you know, like couple minutes, I – I don't. I mean, I feel like there's probably more data on like particular teams not being kind of clutch or something like that, or, or or combinations than there are individual players. You know, like like the Clippers last year obviously were the opposite of clutch, right? Um, and so them rolling that same lineup forward kind of you know I think is more predictive of the finals than I guess Paul George individually. How much would you need to see on a team before you could? declare what you just declared confidently. I think it's a really interesting question yeah. to ask about a team. And, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking Adi's null hypothesis. Like, ah, oh, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know because somebody's going to be last on that stat every time. And how much, how much would you really need to know about a team before you could confidently say that they are weak in the clutch? And I say this, I say this a little bit from a personal place because Texas went through a stretch this, this season where they lost a bunch of games at the clutch and it began feeling like same story. Maybe it's a shock, a smart thing. And then they turn it around and they win some at the end. And so I, I I think we, we like to tell these stories more than they actually exist, but I think it's a great empirical question. Yeah. No, I mean, I, and I think empirically you could approach it the way you do it. Like baseball, they often look at like, you know, sort of like, you know, like, you know, winning percentage in, in, in one score game or, you know, one run games or something like that, or they just like do some kind of, you know, actual number of wins as a fun, you know, like the residual on that compared to what the expected wins are. I agree. But that tends to be predictive of the quality of your, your closer is often have a different clause rather than clutchiness. But listen, you can watch a team for a hundred years and they always seem to fail in the clutch. And the next thing you know, they win three world series in like 10 days, 10, 10 and 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> Does four, that kind of thing four, happen? <laughs> four and tw- four and twenty. If you, it's the team you're thinking, uh, yeah, it is the one. Is it four and twenty? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this is just chance variation at, at the end of the day. Well, you can look at some. Could we could we look at some process measures? I mean, Brad Stevens for a while. And, I mean, it's one of the, one of the things they do in basketball, they look at these inbounds plays, and they can evaluate success of teams. And coaches get a lot of credit because they draw these things up. It's one of the most directly involved that a coach gets in a basketball play and I know for a while there Stevens was at the top of many people's lists and of course those things do matter and in fact I sat through a Sixers Celtics game once where Stevens really put a clinic on it and took away the game by a couple of these set plays so you can start looking maybe at some process measures that would get a little bit more reliable if you had if there were if there were enough of them to 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 make it worthwhile so that's one one specific example yeah, with, with me, it's more um, when I think of certain players, like, for example, I'm not sure LeBron James would come out that high on clutch shooting at the end of the game. And what I mean by that is I don't think of LeBron James as a I want the ball at the end to score. I think more of LeBron James. I want my hand hands on the ball to make the right play at the end of the game, which he gets criticized for and complimented for Paul George. 
Um, I don't consider him a naturally great scorer. I don't. And then the problem is the other great player on that team is Kawhi Leonard. And I definitely don't think he's the guy that says, I got to have the ball at the end of the game. So I I just think the team is ill-constructed right now. I'm not confident that that team has the right mixture of players to win at the end of games. And again, the data seems, I'll do more before next week's show. The data seems to bear out that Paul George is not a clutch player. Yeah, I think this is what kind of differentiates these kind of calculations or this concept of clutchiness and something like basketball as opposed to baseball or baseball. I think you can more argue that, you know, a, a clutch hitter, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter who else is on the team, how much clutchness their kind of contribute contribution is to victory. Whereas, you know, again, what LeBron James, James does to kind of, you know, add his clutchness to his team's victories is, is kind of multifaceted and hard to kind of, you know, grind down to one or two summary statistics the way in baseball, you can kind of do that with clutch hitting. So fellas on the, the tennis front, we've got a little bit of activity. So um, we have a new number two. Is that right? This is a rare occasion, at least in recent years. Yeah. So Daniel Medvedev, who just won recently uh, a tournament is now number two in the world. And the first time in 15 and a half years that one of the top players top big four if you'd like obviously Djokovic um, Federer Nadal and Murray have not been number one or two so no one has broken into the top two in 15 and a half years except for those four players and the part that again bothers me about the tennis rankings right now is um, he's never won a major Um, he's never at, he's only one, I think one masters 1000 event. And so it's one of these things where he wins lots of medium level events and good events. Um, he actually plays well against the big four. Matter of fact, I think there was a time if I've got, I'm pretty sure he's the right player where he had won 20 straight matches, including nine or 10 straight matches against top 10 players. But he can't seem to put it together in a major. And so, which means, can he play seven great matches in a row that he seems to not yet be able to do? Um, And I think also, this is also a strange time for the men's tennis rankings because um, normally it's a rolling average. It's like your best 18 tournaments in a 52-week stretch. But because of COVID, it's now like a two and a half year stretch. As an example, Roger Federer is number six in the world and has played one tournament in 14 months. And he lost in the second round and he's still ranked number six in the world so i think Mm -hmm. we have to put a lot of asterisk next to the ratings right now and the rankings in the world real quickly eric is there an alternative ranking system i mean every other sport we've got a zillion analytics models out there telling us who's best do we not so we have the official ranking system which helps with you know sort tournaments or whatever but there ought to be an analytics number out there somewhere just somebody who writes for the economist have something i mean there must be something some kind of like you could just do an elo Right. You know, on 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 the individual matches. Well, there too, is. Right? As a matter of fact, I think I two weeks ago, I told you that if you looked at ELO uh, ratings um, like Novak Djokovic in 2000 and I forget which year, 2012 or 13 is the highest ELO rating ever. So there is an ELO rating, mm-hmm. but rankings again, have to do with two things. One is your performance, but also they give different point levels to different tournaments. And so, you know, literally the Grand Slams are worth 2,000. The Masters 1,000 are worth 1,000. The ATP 500s are worth 500. What they're trying to do is they're trying to force players 
to play the right tournaments and play enough tournaments because they want fans there. And if you don't, it's not that you can't beat the other players, but you'll get a bad seating at a tournament, which means it'll make it harder for you to win a tournament. So to make it exist, we need to to track it down. But real quickly, I want to point out that there's some really cool cutting edge analytics in tennis that we haven't had. We haven't had conversation on the show. We need to, we need to bring in some of those folks because there's some seriously um, intense modeling going on for tennis these days. And you guys, even you guys, you sophisticated guys would be impressed with what it is. I'm sorry, Adi, for getting in your way. No, I just wanted to make it clear that the rankings, I think Eric did that. The rankings is not intended to, to be an input to a, or right. a, 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 the sole input to a probability of an outcome. Um, it's supposed to reward play. Um, and so, in other words, it, it, it's supposed to encourage and reward success in past play oh, much it. more directly than what we would do when we want to forecast who's going to win something. But ELO is a slow, a slowly changing model. Um, and it uh, and and it and, and so it's it's it, it, it directly can't be used, I think, to predict who's going to win. Um, and there are, I think, what we might call, you know, bottom. You know, we talked about the, with this with basketball. Do we still do a top me- uh, measure, which looked only at wins and losses or do we a bottom? them up where we look at the actual players and how they play but even in tennis where it's just one player you could sort of look at what they're doing on the court and try to build that up to a ranking of course. and i think i think what 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 kate was referring to is that there are people trying to do that um the problem is is that you're still always playing an opponent and that opponent has to be taken into account when you're looking at on on court metrics but we um in my uh i ran a class this semester called sports analytics a capstone course for Wharton students and one of the particularly nice um finishing projects was to predict a tennis build a, a ranking model based on um what they're doing on the court. And interestingly enough, you know, first serve percentage and, and seconds and what, how you do in double in, uh, in uh, break points. These are the, the key factors that predict success in, in the future. Yeah. I was just going to comment that if you go to tennisabstract.com, they have updated as of yesterday, they have exactly the ELO system, ELO ratings. They also have it broken down by hard courts, clay courts, grass courts, et cetera. Um, and so just to let you know, according to those, Djokovic is number one by a smallish margin over Nadal. Medvedev is third. But then there are players that, unless you're a big tennis fan, Andre Rublev, which, who I know quite well, is fourth. Another one, Matteo Berrettini is eighth. Jakob Yannick Sinner is ninth. Um, and so uh, just to let you know, you, and matter of fact, what's neat about this table on tennisabstract.com, it'll tell you when that player's peak match was when their peak age was, and when their peak ELO was. And so just to let you know, um, Novak Djokovic is five years past his prime. Rafa Nadal is 11 years, 12 years past his prime. Um, Daniel Medvedev is exactly in his prime. Dominic Thiem, who just won a U.S. Open last year, he's five years past his prime. So you can see from this all of the different players. It's really a great database of ELO ratings and by surface, their peak age, peak ELO. It's really interesting. Eric Federer has recently said that he's going to keep playing. He said he's back to working out a lot. What does tennis abstract say about Federer's current ranking and how far past his prime is he? And do you believe that he's going to be able to come back the way he's saying he's going to? Well, I think he's got a chance. I think he absolutely has a chance to come back. Um, I think he can be a top 10 player, 
But no, I do not think he can play well enough to win a major. I do not think he will win another major. But yeah, can he be a top 10 player? Absolutely, he can. And he's not actually listed here because these are based on matches played over the last year. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely Federer can be a top 10 player. He can be a quarterfinalist, semifinalist at a major, but that will be his top end. All right. Well, good fun. Uh, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. It's our interview segment. We have a conversation with an NFL draft prospect out of the University of Washington. Look- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter, this is our interview segment. As you guys know, this week, delighted to have Elijah Molden join us. Elijah is a senior at the University of Washington and a prospect in the NFL draft. He is a very successful college player, All-American, Pac-12 player of the year as defensive back out there, and a very interesting prospect in the NFL draft that's unfolding right now. We are lucky and delighted to have you. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, that Pac-12 player of the year for a four-game season, um, <laughs> that's something. Hey, it's something. I mean, you guys only had so much – they only let you play so much football. So you did what you could, and you jumped out at some people, and that's what you need to do, especially if you're trying to make a name for yourself in the NFL. So congratulations on that. Elijah, we are analytics geeks around here. We're football fans and analytics geeks. So we want to hear a little bit about your training and the combines. This is pro days this year are standing in for combines. And so you don't go to Indy or wherever they're going to move it next time you do the pro day. But you also mentioned training. And this is something I think a lot of our listeners don't appreciate how much you guys get in to training for the pro days and training for combine. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, you guys say you're analytics driven. And I think, you know, the trainer I'm with Les Spellman, he's the exact same way. And it's a big reason why I chose to train mm-hmm. with him uh, here in Irvine. He's just, uh, I mean, it, it's, this training's on a whole different level. It's super detailed, uh, backed by science. And then just like the, the level of coaching I'm getting here, you know, I'm, I'm around a bunch of people who are passionate about what they do. And they're all, it, it feels like, um, you know, they're all trying to make me the best version of myself as, as I get into this pro day. So I'm extremely mm-hmm. fortunate. So Elijah, this, you're, you said Les Spellman and Irvine. So you, you're down there. Can you give us a sense of what that looks like? You're down there probably with a, a crew of other prospects and you guys yeah. are working out every day in a, in a specific regimen. And it's, it, my understanding is it's not even just drills. They, they work you out in other ways as well. And they're trying to prep you for interviews. They're, it's really the whole package. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it looks like 65 degrees and sunny weather every day, which isn't that bad. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's kind of, you know, full, you know, head on from every standpoint. Um, you know, it's, I think Les Bowman, he, he, they're like, that's, that's the head of the, of the program and he outsources, um, you know, different companies and entrepreneurs who helped me with this process. So I have a DB coach and I have a, I, you know, I had an interview prep that my agency set up. Uh, physical therapy, massage, like it's, we're so spoiled. You have no idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, part of me is like, do you really deserve this? <laughs> um, like I said, I'm extremely fortunate. What part well, of that process is kind that, of the most uh, unique based relative to kind of what you were kind of experienced through yeah. most of your athletics career? Like what kind of part um, is, is, is kind of the most different 
Yeah, well, I'm in a weird space right now where I'm in between two teams or two experiences. I'm in between UW and I'm in between um, playing for an NFL team. So it's like right now it's very individualistic. It's very, um, you know, self – no, I don't want to say like self-centered because, um, I mean, in, in a way I am, you know, I have so many people geared towards me and me only. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, it feels like I don't really just like, I'm more of a team guy, more of a, uh, you know, I'd rather not be flattered with this and that. Um, so that, in that sense, it's a lot different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Training that's focused on me and me alone, not just the team dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, so Elijah, just a quick question. Do they like when they, like when you first got there and they measure, let's say, your 40-yard time, your vertical, maybe your stamina, maybe all kinds of things. Do they give you a sense of, hey, look, here's the benchmarks you kind of need to hit if you want to be considered strongly for this position in the draft? Like, I'll make it up. You have to yeah. increase your number of benches. You have to increase your you know, hip rotation speed. You have to jump a little bit higher. Is it that level? And then do they, do then is this something you track over time to say, how am I, how am I going towards reaching those goals? Yes to all of it. Yeah, you, you hit it right on. Um, I mean, I, when we first got in, it was like, you know, what are your goals? Just kind of talking about it. And then, boom, we had first day of training. So now my coach sees me running. He sees me, you know, doing all these drills, and he has a better understanding of where I'm at, especially since we have a GPS tracker that we wear during our workouts. So in different uh, training modalities where he can actually track my speed and my power like the whole nine yards. So it's like I said, it's very data driven. And from that, from that standpoint, it's like, okay, this is two weeks from now. This is where you want to be. Um, this is how we're going to get there. And I've been hitting those landmarks and, and a little more. So that's been fun. Cause I think my coach is hard to, it's, it's tough to surprise him a lot of the time. So I, I love running faster than what he thinks I'm going to run. Elijah, does it feel like football to you or does it feel like drills? Are there any of those drills that you think really kind of get at, Football skill? Yeah. It doesn't feel like football to me, and that's why I do miss football. Uh, I understand and I respect, like, the whole combine process. Um, but I really do miss football, you know what I mean? I love working out, don't get me wrong, but um, I'm not doing a whole lot of football right now. So I'm looking forward to after pro day where I can flip that switch again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about football. So my, my impression is that you played a lot of slot corner. And with Washington and how do you expect to be utilized in the NFL? What do you think that looks like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it looks like wherever they want to use me. Uh, I think I'm most disruptive at that nickel slash safety position. Uh, but I can also play outside if I'm needed to. I think I have knowledge of the position and, and the skills to do so. So really, I mean, it's, I think that's a fancy way to say anywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to figure out where that would be. Elijah, explain to us how you play, how anybody plays defensive back in college football these days or professional football these days. I mean, offenses have gotten so sophisticated. You not only have to be the kind of athlete you are, but you got to be on top of what's going on out there. It's, it's hard to imagine as a, as a non-football player how you guys stay on top of what offenses are doing these days. Yeah, I think, I mean, simply put, I think if you were to, as a, as a defender, we're either in man coverage or slot coverage, or man coverage or zone coverage. And man coverage is really like the name of the game is patience. Um, you know, kind of sorting through all the BS that the receiver is doing at the line of scrimmage. That takes patience. And then zone coverage is just pattern recognition. Uh, being able to like, you know, 
perif the routes, but also look at the quarterback at the same time. And I think it all comes down to to football awareness. You know, it's like all comes down to preparation, comes down to confidence in your your abilities and, and all that stuff. I heard I've heard you say that you didn't rate yourself very good um, er, early on in your college career, and, and you feel like you've gotten better every year. What is it that has allowed you to improve like that? And, and you know, most guys are going to get a little better with experience and you get your size and you spend time with the strength and conditioning guys. But yeah. Some guys improve more. So what have you done? What do you think has allowed you to improve between your freshman and senior year? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think really it was just the off season. My goal every off season is to work harder than I did the previous off season. Um, and I always work hard, so it's tough to do. But like, I mean, if you, if you, if you think about it, practice at the at these you know at UW and at other college programs and also at the next level like at the at the most basic level practice is like you you learn through failure right but when you're at practice at these like elite programs you don't really have time to fail you know what I mean it's like a comp, comp practice is a competition mm-hmm. so um and in the off season it's like that's when you fail the most and like my no whole kidding. goal is to yeah, my whole goal is to just fail as much as I can and to um, see where that takes me. I think it's a lot of fun because it's, it's a lot of uh, problem-solving and creativity, and you learn a lot about your strengths and weaknesses, and you can kind of make tweaks. So that's is, where I'm doing the most. That's fascinating, Elijah. What, what, fa- failing at what? In the, what? What are you putting yourself through that allows you to fail? Like, what are you trying to do that you fail at in off-season? Um, I mean, everything, I think. I usually I just start very basic with the fundamentals, start really slow and then keep on layering like some complexity onto it. Um, and at that point, it's just like doing complex movements as fast as I can. And whenever you do that, you're going to fail, especially, you know what I mean? So it's just like, and then once when you, once when you get to that point, then you gain confidence. But again, like the, the big huge part about that is just failing and, and um, yeah, having the courage to fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could, um, one of the things we talk about here on Wharton Moneyball all the time is um, what I'll call it. Let's call it uncertainty, if you'd like, in some way. So I've been obviously looking up your projected draft status and all of this. Yeah. I'm sure you've been tracking that as well. And obviously, and congratulations, by the way, as you know, you're on the rise. So that's a good thing. Um, I had no idea, actually. Oh, well, I just looked. So but either way, like how much uncertainty in your mind, or have you been told there is to your draft status? Like if I told you, you went 30th, would that yeah. surprise you? If I told you, you went 80th, would that surprise you? Like, is it plus or minus like one round or like how, what, how much uncertainty is there? Do you think in where you could get drafted and how much of it also is fit? Like, could you be a first round grade for team a and a third round grade for some other team? Yeah. Um, I think, all the feedback my agent has gotten and, and I've gotten is late first, early second. So usually that's the ballpark. It's funny. I don't like, you know, I don't like search my name up on Twitter or anything like that, but I'll, someone will send me something and I'll see it. And it's just like some projection. And it's just like a complete slap in the face. Um, <laughs> it's entertaining for me. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it is, it is still uncertain just because nothing's set in stone. A lot of people, I think, have been surprised, um, you know, come draft day. So really, like, the main thing I'm, I'm focusing on is, like, no matter where I go, being being grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, hopefully it's a good fit. Hopefully I'm drafted to a team with a great organization.
Well, let me just tell you, I'll say it right now. Uh, my team, the World Championship Buccaneers, are right at the end of that first round. And let me tell you, they can use you. So I'll be very happy if your name gets called in round one by my Buccaneers. That's awesome. I love the play for him. They got some, some of my buddies play for him, too. So, Elijah, what, what's it like for you to think about moving from the college game to the pro game? And I mean, you've been through a transition as you go from high school to college, and now we're talking about another big jump from college to pro. As you sit right there at the threshold of it, how does it feel thinking about walking into a professional locker room, covering professional receivers, yeah. tackling those bigger guys? Um, like you said, it's the same as when I was a senior in high school, kind of looking – where I had to go and like there's a lot of uncertainty and like a lot of you know like fear and doubt with anything that's like basically like the situation I'm in is bigger than myself um so there's just like a lot of unknown and uh I'm excited to just to get started kind of dive right in and uh you know really like I'm big on faith and this is a situation where you need to you know lean on God you know this is these type of moments Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, related, is there any impact of having a father who's been through this before? Somebody, listening to you talk, I wonder if you benefit from the wisdom of someone. Yeah. Your dad was 11th, 11th pick in the draft, had a long career in the NFL, played your position. What's been the impact of having that kind of figure in your life? Yeah, No, I wouldn't say any benefit at all. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's my dad, so it's tough to – I've never had any other dad. This is just what I've known. We've been talking football ever since I can remember. My first memories is of him making a play. So it's like it feels like it feels like this is a long time coming. I feel like I've I've um shoot, you know, ever since I first started football when I was five or six years old, I felt like I was gonna be here. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. even through you know, through the ups and the downs. And now I'm here. So I think that's credit to him. Mm-hmm. Your dad's obviously been watching you play your whole your whole career so far. Yeah. What compared to when he played? Obviously, there's big differences in the game itself as well as the preparation. What would you so? What would he say is kind of the biggest difference between when he when now then and yeah. when he played? Uh, I think he would say um, probably like my my football IQ. He didn't have a dad who played in the league. I don't think his dad knew much about football. Um, and like, as a son, I was, you know, I'm the one who got all that, all the, all that knowledge. And, um, you know, I've, I have him as a resource plus all of his teammates, like just at the snap of my finger. So even before I got to UW where there's elite coaches, I had access to, you know, like top notch information. Um, so that's helped me a lot. And that's something that, like I said, it's, he didn't have that. So, yeah. Elijah, in terms of role models, are there defensive backs in the NFL that you model your game after that you hope to play like? Yeah, I mean, I, I watch a lot of Tyron Matthew. I watch a lot of Logan Ryan. I watch a lot of Jamal Adams, Buda Baker. I watch so I watch a lot of tape, mm-hmm. and really, I just want to steal a little bit from all of them and make it to make it to my own. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to be anyone else. I'm trying to be myself, but they mm-hmm. certainly help me be myself. Can you give us, we don't watch a lot of tape, especially we're not trying to model our game after watching players. Can you give us an example of something you're kind of stealing from one of those guys as you watch the tape, something you're trying to use in your game? Yeah, uh, with Tyron Matthew, I think it's really, it's just like his whole feel for the game. Um, If you look at him, like watching tape, he's always creeping around on the back end, like 
playing mind games with the quarterback, so I try and do that. Uh, Jamal Adams, like his phenomenal at blitzing and sacking the quarterback. Mm-hmm. That's an area I'm looking to improve on. Buda Baker, just his effort, really. Uh, I think you can see it on tape. Mm-hmm. Logan Ryan's versatility, his knowledge of, of the defense. So everyone has, like, kind of that defining trait. I mean, they're they're damn near good at everything. You know what I mean? They're a professional. I think you can't you can't have too many weaknesses in the league. But I'm looking for those um, like those traits that make them who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, listen, we don't want to keep you too long. We will be following the pro day here toward the end of the month. Can you give us any um, any goals? What is there a drill that you have a number that you're aiming for that you can share with us so we can follow and know whether you hit your mark or not? Or is that kind of out of out of bounds? You're not supposed to share those numbers right now. Not supposed to share those numbers. <laughs> All right. But I'll let you know whether or not I hit them after. So. All right. Well, listen, we're excited for you. Um, Elijah, wish you the best with Pro Day. Wish you the best with the draft. We'll be pulling for you and hope it all goes real well. Thank you much. I appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Elijah Molden, senior at the University of Washington, Pac-12 Player of the Year, All-American the last two years. And if you want to get jazzed about football, I suggest you go look at his highlights. It's great fun to watch what he's done on the field for the Huskies the last few years.